You washed up. Sorry? <laughs> Welcome to the island of discarded women, my friend. I used to be somebody. Are you that woman on the radio? Your island job is peladora de papas. Uh, sorry, what? Potato peeler. 87% match for uh, your skills. Okay, that's not... Anyway, what is the second best match then? Host of the island podcast. Are you kidding me? No, no, see, that's me. That, that's perfect for me. Freedom's the only thing I need. This feels so good, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. And look, there's a full moon. Gosh, wow. yeah, I love sitting on this beach at night yeah. and looking out at the endless stretch of water. Mm. Wow. It's really mesmerizing, isn't it? There's something so tranquil about the ocean, yeah. that mm -hmm. eternal roll of the waves and the splash on the shore. Yeah. Hey, isn't that Cassiopeia up there? Yep. Yeah. What's a Cassiopeia? Oh. I found Cassiopeia, a go. constellation in the northern sky, named after the vain queen Cassiopeia in Greek mythology, yeah. who boasted about her unrivaled beauty. Oh, ouch, oh, wow. Mr. Wikipedia. When <laughs> I was a kid, oh, here uh, we go. I decided that God must be water, since no living thing can survive without it. Oh. Even looking at it now, I can still understand why I believe that. Hmm. The ocean hmm. looks so alive. That's true. Well, I was a kid. I wondered how God could live on the clouds without falling through. True. <laughs> and then, you know what? How could God create the universe? I mean, one guy. Um, guy? Hello? I mean... Hello, my name uh, is Mitty. That's no. okay, Mary. No, I mean, okay, one person or one being. And, and can the universe really be infinite? Yes. What do you mean? I mean, infinity. The thought of infinity just blows my mind. Really. Describe infinity to me and make it make sense. You can't. I can. No, you can't. Oh, Sue. The universe just goes on and on and on and on forever. That's it, that's it. There's no way to ever figure out how big it is or anything. It's just, that's it. Forever. Actually, scientists have determined the size of the universe. Oh. No, they haven't. According to current scientific evidence, it is 93 billion light years in diameter. Well, how'd they get that? Oh, radio waves, parallax measurements, color, Okay, light. and then what? What's beyond that? Was there like a wall, so and then there's like nothing, and then what is nothing? Is there what? Is, what is Mary? What is nothing? I'm sorry, I didn't understand the question. Uh, Sue, Mary can't find nothing. Oh, well, whatever. So, do you two believe in God? Oh wow. Well, do you, Nancy? Okay, okay. What do you well, What do you actually mean by God? Yeah. I found God. Okay, here we go. God is conceived of as the supreme being, okay. creator, deity, and principal object of faith. Okay. Uh, no, Sue, what? no mention of it being a guy. Hey, it's what I learned in Sunday school. Well, they could be a day. Buddha said there were many paths to understanding shh, God. Shh, Hello! What? Wait, shh, shh. What? Did what? you hear that? Sir? What's that? Someone there? Hello! What is that? Excuse me! What is... Oh, 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 oh! What the hell? I'm sorry, I didn't mean to scare oh. you. <laughs> I thought you heard me walking up. Oh. Can you tell me where I am? I, I was kayaking with my wife, and I, I somehow got off course, and... Yeah. Uh. Hello? Hello. Oh. My name is Miri. No. For no. English. No. Say, no, no, Miri, that's fine. That's okay. Para español. Whoa. Okay. Whoa, what is that? Watch your staff. Is that a lava lamp? Yes. No. And it talks? She For English, talks. say yeah. one. Para español. For English, okay. say one. 
But uh, one, one. Why am I saying one? Well, well, for English, Mary Joe. doesn't recognize his voice. Oh. oh, Mary, he's a man. Recalculating. Oh, you're the first man to visit the island. Yeah. This is an island. I found men. An adult male human. Oh, okay. isn't she smart? Look, I'm, 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 I'm real sorry if I've interrupted something. I'm just, I'm trying to figure out where the hell I am and where Melanie is. The island of got... discarded women. Right. Excuse me. Uh, this yeah. is the island of discarded women. Right. And what does that mean exactly? So you tell him. Yeah. I, why do I, you tell him? I'm not going to tell him. I have to no, tell you, him. You're, you're better talking. at that. Uh, all right. All right. All right. Yes. Uh, this is an island full of women who have been. Discarded, dismissed, discounted. Whoa, whoa, that is that is loaded. Yeah, it is. It is. It so is loaded. Why are you all here? Oh well, uh, me ageism. Me suffocating patriarchy. Yeah. Me, I just like water. Oh. <laughs> what can I say? Oh. So not the truth. So so, the truth. so you're an island with with a bunch of women. Yeah. Oh, oh. Uh, have Have you seen my wife, Melanie? There was this big wave. It hit us. We got separated. Um, no, there weren't any wash-ups today. Yeah, well, she's probably in a kayak. Uh, she, she was tall. She was wearing a, a, a blue wetsuit. Day? No, sorry. Mm. So where in the world are we? We don't know. Somewhere in the ocean. You, you don't know where you are? No. Yes. <laughs> then how did you get here? We all wash up on this island, right. okay? I'm on the island rescue team, and we have to be very careful every time someone washes up. Because right. she might have seawater in her lungs. or. Whoa, whoa. You're, you're serious about this? Yes. Yeah. So if you don't know how you got here, then how do you leave? Well, yeah. we'll find out when the time comes. Right. I guess some right. of us have left. It's kind of hard to explain, like infinity. Oh, God, Sue. In the meantime, we're rediscovering our strength. Right. That's right. the goal, anyway. Okay, okay, but you and your wife were kayaking, and you got off course. Right, right. There was this huge wave. <laughs> oh, 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 wait a minute. I, d- I got service on my phone. <laughs> Hello? Yes, yes, dude, dude, it's me, it's Pete. No, I'm good, I'm good, I'm fine. Oh, oh, how's Melanie? Oh, you got her. Oh, you got her, that's great, that's great. I washed up on some, some crazy island. Yeah, careful hey. about that. Uh, an island, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. called uh, the, uh, the island of... Of, dis- uh, of discarded women. Women. Right, uh-huh. Yeah, it's all women. Yeah, it's all women. No, I don't think so. Are you guys a cult? Yes. Probably. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's not a cult. Yeah. I found a cult. Oh, okay. Supernatural, mystical, no. or magical uh-huh. okay. beliefs, uh-huh. practices, no, or phenomena. No, Mary. He said cult. Please don't get her started, uh-huh. please. Yeah, yeah, dude. Dude, well, where are you? Yeah, okay, yeah, I can, I can, I can see it. Oh, great. I, w- I will find you. And, and Mel's good, right? Oh, that is terrific. I, I'm, I'm on my way. That was a miracle. I, I mean, out of nowhere, my cell phone rings? Yeah, that's yeah. something. I, they're out there waiting for me, so uh, I gotta go. So, oh. so where, where are they waiting? Well, you see that light, that light out there? Um, Way out there? Yeah, 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 yeah that's them. I'll, I'll just paddle out to them. They're, they're going to wait for me. Okay. Oh, okay, and Melanie's safe? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And, and she's got stories. <laughs> like, I mean, like you guys, she was oh, yeah. dismissed by her boss for some bullshit oh, reason. Oh, see. I think he just wanted a sweet young thing sitting next to him in his well, meeting. Yeah, I mean, she was way overqualified for that crappy job anyway. Yeah, so, so sorry about that. Yeah, well, thank you. I mean, she's, yeah. she's looking, and I keep telling her she'll, she'll find something because sure. she's too talented not to. Oh, right? sure, sure. Yeah. And you know what? Good for you. Yeah, yeah until you. the patriarchal hammer comes slamming down on her dreams. Oh, no, no, no. I 
I found if I had a hammer by beat secret. That's great, Mary. But we're creating our own dreams now. Yeah, 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 Mary, thanks. Hey, your your shirts, your yeah. t-shirts. I just I realized you're all you're all wearing the same t-shirts? Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, what do they say? W W Shush. When women show up, shit happens. Yeah, it's our movement on the island. Yeah. You know, w W Shush! W W Shush! Don't we sound like a lot of people? I'm sorry, I could not find W.W. Shush. Please check the spelling and try again. I know that bugs the hell out of you, Mary, but it's just an acronym. I found acronym, an abbreviation form from the initial letters of other words. Thank you, Mary. Thank you, Mary. That lamp kills me. Yeah, she's great. Hey, do you have any extra t-shirts? Mel would love one, I think. Yeah, I've got an extra one right here in my bag. I was going to send it home today, but I missed the drone drop. Oh, uh, Pete, you can have it. Yeah, tell your wife to wear it well. Oh, thank yeah. you, thank you. I will. Uh, and and look, I I really gotta go. Um, is that light still out there? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can I can see it. Well, thanks for the shirts, and it, sure. it's um sure. it's, it's really nice to meet you all. Yeah, nice likewise. to meet you. Sure. Yeah. Good luck with your rediscovering. Thank you. Oh, thank, thank you. you. And, and paddle safely. <laughs> will do. Yeah. yeah. Right. And off he goes. Well, that was weird. Yeah. I thought it was kind of cool. Yeah. Like, where is he going? He is going to the island of discarded men, <laughs> which doesn't exist and never will. <laughs> okay. But seriously, I don't see a light out there. I don't either. Yeah, no, 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 yes, you do. It's, 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 it's way out there. Okay, maybe. I don't see it. Yeah. Well, he's meeting up with his people. I mean, they must have, like, a big boat or something. <gasps> Wait! 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 Pete, 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 we wouldn't all fit in one kayak anyway, no, right? Right, <laughs> right. Yeah. And I couldn't have left the two of you behind. So. Okay, okay. Oh, so second, who Jared. said you would be going? I'm the oldest, so I naturally. Uh, well, yeah. I'm the youngest, so yeah. really, and I'm, I'm just right. Oh, so I was just the one to go, right, Mary? Right. Follow your dreams, and one day they will lead you where you dream to be. Okay, sorry. No, I'm sorry. Mm. Yeah, I'm sorry too. Okay, no, I don't see that light anymore either. There's no way he's already there, right? No. Right. So, what the heck was that all about? Or did it even happen? Oh, stop it, you're scaring me. No, really, what is the evidence? Footprints, where? Um, well, they washed away already. Guys, I think it did happen. Yeah. You know, and we learned something valuable from it. Sure, what? Mary can only recognize our voices. That's, no, that's right. True. Good for you, Mary. Yeah. Nice, Mary. Okay, but seriously, Mary, how did that guy Pete find phone service? Yeah. We've never had phone service on the island. I'm sorry. I didn't understand the question. Yeah, that's all right. Never mind. Pete and Melanie. That's all we know about them, right? Yeah, I think. Right. I found Peter Keating, 51, IT specialist, outdoor enthusiast, and spouse Melanie Keating, 50, former CMO of Fortune 500 company. Oh, wow. On October 29th, Peter and Melanie were ocean kayaking when a wave overtook them and they were lost at sea. Wow. Attempts to find them or their kayaks have proved unsuccessful. Oh, oh. 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 wow. God bless them. Translating, Dios los bendiga. I wanna walk outside and spread my wings 
fly to the moon and listen to the whole world sing. Now don't you worry about me. Freedom's the only thing I need. God was my dad's employer. He paid our mortgage, our utilities. He gave us an allowance for a car. Okay, well, technically, the Methodist church was my dad's employer, but I don't think you can have one without the other. We were preacher's kids, PKs. And our every move was scrutinized by the congregation. Well, at least that's what we were led to believe. Oh, Susie, that dress is too short. What will people at church think? What will people at church think about the minister who would allow his daughter to wear such a short skirt? That's what my mother really meant. I imagine it's like being children of a royal family, but without the crown jewels. I went to church until I was 12 years old. Church was Bible study, community service, Sunday school, and family. I went twice a week. Once on Sunday for service in Sunday school, then Wednesday evenings to do Bible study. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever shall believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. I got a sticker for each verse I memorized. <laughs> but don't test me on it now, because uh, that's the only one I remember. We played a lot of games, and we sang. Father Abraham has many sons, and many sons have Father Abraham, and I am one of them, and so are you, and you, and you. So let's all praise the Lord, right arm. It was the encouragement I got from my church family, the support, the love that attracted me the most. Because home was rough. Though, if I'm being honest, I was always a little uncomfortable learning about God. It's not that I questioned if there was a higher power, but the idea of God to me was just restrictive. When I was little, I thought a lot about infinity, obsessively. I asked myself, what if we weren't here in this world? What if this world didn't exist? Why are we all here? Out of all the people living in this world, why me? And I also had this idea that something or somebody greater must be responsible for all of this. I was about five years old when I asked my mother if God really existed, but she could not tell me for sure. I guess she was struggling with her own questions. See, I already had Santa Claus figured out. But this, this idea of a God was something much more interesting. And I wanted to find out if it was true. Because if it was, then this world was a much safer place than I thought. For instance, I didn't need to feel sad, scared, or lonely anymore. My religious background consisted of Sunday school at an Episcopal church when I was a kid. My father was Episcopalian. And the occasional Quaker service. My mother was Quaker. My father always joked that he married her to save her. Ha ha. I was really taken with rituals and, and the vestments of the Roman Catholic Church for a time. 
My best friend who lived next door, Daryl Ann, was Catholic. She had her first communion with the fancy white dress and the veil. I was kind of envious of all that, her being a Catholic. Until one day, we, we were eight, swinging on my swing set, and she suddenly started to cry and told me that I had to become a Catholic right away because otherwise my soul would be damned to hell and I couldn't go to heaven when I died. Instead, I'd be set on fire. Well, I ran in the house terrified and relayed this to my mother, who was as mad as I've ever seen her. She told me that was pure nonsense, and then she called Daryl Ann's mother and read her the riot act. I could hear her on the phone. Oh, no, don't you dare suggest that Daryl Ann made that up on her own. Little children would never come up with such a sadistic concept as hell. Daryl Ann was taught that by you and your church, and you are responsible for terrifying both of these little girls, and I want you to stop spreading such garbage. I grew up attending Holy Spirit Elementary School. My grandparents had set aside money for the grandchildren so we could all receive a solid Catholic education. So naturally, I grew up going to weekly mass and prayed before lunch and could recite the Apostles' Creed by the time I was in second grade. I still remember our sweet, sweet school priest. The way he laughed, he was so jolly and happy. All the kids loved him and his belly would bounce as he chuckled. Looking back now, he seemed very similar to a modern-day Santa Claus. But at the time, I was genuinely convinced that Father Phil was, indeed, God himself. I was quite surprised when my aunt had to break the news to me that it wasn't true. While the whole Daryl Ann's mother's business was getting worked out, I became distracted by the news that the Russians were planning to drop an atomic bomb on my neighborhood. That report came from my other best friend, Tommy, who lived behind us. His family was building an underground fallout shelter, the only one in our neighborhood. Tommy had a meltdown when his parents explained that when the Russians dropped the bomb, only their family could go into the fallout shelter because Tommy wanted me to be in the shelter too, because Tommy loved me. And Tommy knew that my parents didn't have a fallout shelter. We just had a laundry room that I thought of it as our fallout shelter because there was a bottle of distilled water for the steam iron down there on a shelf, <laughs> along with a couple of cans of cream and mushroom soup that didn't fit in the kitchen pantry. My mother was resistant to the whole idea of a fallout shelter. She said, honey, it's unlikely we'd survive a nuclear attack anyway. And even if we did, who wants to live in a radioactive cul-de-sac? <laughs> In the meantime, Tommy's parents finally gave in. Okay, Nancy can be in our fallout shelter. Tommy was exultant. He ran across to my yard to tell me, his little face still mottled from crying so hard while he was begging his parents to relent. And after all of that, I had to tell him that I couldn't leave my parents and my sister and my brothers and my cats and Daryl Ann. I'd rather die, literally. Well, the Russians didn't drop the bomb, and Mother and Daryl Ann's mother repaired their relationship. But I began conflating the Catholic view of heaven with Tommy's fallout shelter. And soon I began picturing the afterlife as a 
big concrete bunker in the sky, and which God handpicked some people to be inside and condemned the rest to stand outside where they were being tortured with radioactive fire with the full knowledge of all the people that got to be inside. And I started to think, how is that anyone's idea of heaven? It's all bittersweet and funny looking back now. You know, I was quite the devoted Christian as a young girl. I loved going to church, everything about it, the singing, the candles, the praying, the smell. One Easter, I went to church three times in the span of 24 hours, which then my uncle gave me the nickname Sister Sarah. There were no female leaders in the church when I was young. There were church secretaries and Sunday school teachers, and often the organist was a woman, but no female ministers. The women with the highest visibility in the church were the ministers' wives, and they had to be charming and compassionate, first ladies types, 24-7. But were they allowed to have their own identities? No, not in my experience. Now, there are more and more denominations and churches and synagogues with female ministers and rabbis, which is terrific. I'm curious, though, if their partners and or husbands get to appreciate their own identities. And that's how I started my journey through all the religions. But ultimately, I realized that religions are invented by men. And that's why it doesn't work. Anyway, to me, a quick way to see God is through art. Yes, art. Just, just think about it. Anybody can invent things, start churches, make buildings, paint, make noise. But for something to be considered art, it needs to be beautiful, inspiring, appealing. It needs a secret sauce. And things either have it or they don't. So I think in art, God is the secret sauce. I was practicing two religions during this time of going to church, Christianity and Hmong shamanism, which revolves around reincarnation, appreciation for our ancestors, and the natural elements of earth. The reason I stopped going to church at 12 was because my dad gave me an ultimatum. I couldn't keep practicing both religions, though there's nothing wrong with that, I think. So I had to make a decision. And honestly, my heart was in shamanism, but that didn't mean it was an easy decision. I had a church family that I really loved, and I enjoyed what I was doing. And you know, the idea of God isn't dead to me. In fact, I've added that idea into my religion. I believe that when you die, your soul goes to rest before reincarnating. Perhaps that place is what people call heaven. And while you're there, you are taken care of by a higher power. And perhaps the higher power is what people call God. Those memories bring me so much joy. The unshakable faith, the unquestionable certainty. The older I get, the more uncertain things seem. Life takes a turn of events, plans change, and the map laid out for us has so many roads that it's hard to choose which one is right. 
the faith that once fueled my dreams, it runs out. and It doesn't happen overnight. It's a gradual trip, and we don't always notice it happening until one day the world becomes far bigger and more complicated than we ever imagined. And that's okay. I know that there's beauty in that within itself. I know that deep down, that same girl, Sister Sarah, is within me, just with a few more complex layers. But she's waiting for me to come home. And I know if she could talk to me right now, she would say, have faith, if nothing else, in yourself and the dreams that you were born of. I wanted to believe in something. I looked to science. Science taught me that I am stardust. That at the beginning of time, the stars collided and exploded, showering our planet with their magic atoms. And that became the stuff, the actual stuff of which I was made. My friends were made of it too. And my family and my pets and the flowers in our gardens. All life came from the stars and all life has remained linked by our common genesis. Furthermore, science is amassing evidence that all life is conscious. Yes, trees, bees are conscious. I heard someone say just recently that the key to life is not to be in the know, but to be in the mystery. The mystery is where faith lies. So here is my declaration of faith. I believe all life forms will, with the help of science, become aware of each other and learn to communicate with one another. Plants, insects, birds. Our world will become more respectful of diversity, kinder and inclusive, because we will finally truly cherish life. Maybe this will be the new paradigm that will replace the 2,000-year-old cycle of patriarchal Middle Eastern religions that have shaped our treatment of non-human life for far too long. I am hopeful. I have faith. My mother would say, God bless them a lot. Them might be the young men dying senselessly in Vietnam, or could be a neighbor with a health situation. It was often the first words out of her mouth. God bless those Catholics. They are out in the streets and the trenches every day working with the poor. She said that a lot, which I took to meant she didn't think the Methodists were doing enough for the poor. I'm not a practicing churchgoer these days, and not because of any kind of rebellion. I'm still seeking and searching. But my immediate response to anyone going through a rough time is to say, God bless you. And when my husband decided that he, was, that he no longer believed in God and that he was instead an atheist, he asked me if I would stop saying, God bless you, to him. And I told him, I can't do that. For me, saying God bless you meant that I wanted the spirit and energy and love and light from the universe to surround him and comfort him and lift him up. Is that loving spirit God? I don't know. Should I find another phrase than God bless you? I don't think I can. It's, it's in my PK DNA.
protest in Sudan last spring, led by women pushing for change and their archaic laws. Those protests culminated in the resignation of their dictator and ushered in a new transitional government. And this last week, that new government took a significant step towards repealing the repressive laws aimed at women for so many years. Yes, these laws included a ban against women dancing. A ban against women wearing pants or mixing with men who weren't relatives. And the punishments for these infractions included flogging, fines, and at the most extreme, and this is serious, stoning to death. 
More repressive laws remain, so the protests will continue. But let's celebrate this victory that resulted with masses of courageous women in the Sudan showing up and making their voices heard. Yes. This WW Shush moment is brought to you by Flip 'em the Bird. When you can't find the words, let your gloves say it for you. Shop their fingerless gloves, hats at flipinthebird.com. When there's no words, you can flip them the bird. You're listening to the roar of the female humans. humans. And now please join me in welcoming my special guest for the conversation, Susan Kimberly. Susan, come on up. Susan. Hi there, how are you? Just a little, get a little tiny bit closer to the mic. Hi there, how are you? Okay, good. <laughs> she follows direction well. You are a transgender trailblazer who has been a force in St. Paul politics for decades. Now, you were born as Robert Sylvester, and then in 1983, you became Susan Kimberly. That's right? correct. And we're going to learn all about that in our 20-minute conversation, but you wrote a play about your journey I from did. Bob to Susan. And it's called Superman Becomes Lois Lane. I did. Yes. And it's being performed for the first time at the History Theater in St. Paul, opening this February 8th. World premiere. It's what? It's a world premiere. It's a world premiere. First time wasn't good enough. I'm sorry, it's a world premiere. You're absolutely right. So before we jump into our conversation, we're going to hear the opening scene from Susan's play, performed by the actors who will play the roles of Susan and Bob in the show, Freya Richmond and Sean Dooley. <laughs> the Gallatin River near Big Sky, Montana, February 1982. I woke up just as a little pine tree disappeared beneath the right front fender of my rented Ford Fairmont station wagon. He isn't alone in this car, of course. By this time, we were seldom alone. He had no time to think. He just reacted. We were going at least 50 miles an hour, and he was certain that if he tried to yank the car back up on the highway, it would roll over. I didn't have my seatbelt on, so if the car rolled over, I would probably die. I'd never done anything like this before, and I was somewhat surprised to discover... As the nose of the car pointed straight down that my life was finally making sense and that I didn't want to die. Although it seemed like we were about to. Are you trying to kill me? Why would you ask me that? Remember the Itasca conference a few years ago? Remind me. You were bored and started daydreaming. A suicide by automobile seemed like a painless way of ending our confusion. Okay. Yeah. I guess I do remember. Drive over a cliff along the Pacific Coast Highway and crash into the ocean. We would surely die, or so you thought. Okay, but this, this is different. This is really an accident. I, I fell asleep. I'm not so sure. We continued to crash down the cliff toward the Gallatin River, somewhere below us. The car rolled and bounced and crashed over rocks, tree stumps, fallen logs, and beer cans. I was certain that something big would suddenly rise up in front of the car and bring it to a crushing halt. And I would go flying through the windshield and make a horrible mess of my face. He isn't really concerned about his face, of course. He's barely aware that he has a face. True. True. I rarely look in the mirror. I never like what I see. But I do. I love my face. 
It's becoming a pretty face, and I'm increasingly fond of it. In any case, I most certainly did not want to smash it into a windshield or anything else. <sighs> Jesus, Bob, why didn't you fasten your seatbelt? What were you thinking? Obviously, I wasn't. Continuing down the embankment, I tucked my legs up under me as best I could because I didn't want to break or lose them. And then I did something I hadn't done in a very long time. I prayed. Were you even aware you had legs? Not really. But you do. You, you have great legs. I do. And I surely don't want them maimed or destroyed in a stupid automobile accident in Montana. So after making all of the preparations I could to protect my lovely long legs, I did something I hadn't done in a very long time. I prayed. And with our prayers, the car rolled into the river and came to a stop. We opened the door and discovered a rock. We stepped onto the rock and then onto the riverbank. I turned and looked back up the way we had come and knew we were lucky to be alive. The car was a mess, but we hadn't even gotten our feet wet. My life should probably have been over, but it wasn't. For some reason, here I was, alive and well, standing on the bank of the Gallatin River near Big Sky in Montana. And I concluded that my life had been spared for a reason. Still, in another way, his life was over. And I knew exactly what I would do with the new life I had been given. I would live it, as I had always imagined it should be lived. He took my hand and led me back up the way we had come. Not easy to do hiking back up that embankment in three-inch heels. When we got up to the highway, I hailed a passing trucker who took us back to the Big Sky condominium where we were staying. He straightened things out with the rental car company and the Montana State Highway Patrol. And then I walked up to the ski lodge, found a table in a back corner where I thought it would be safe for the two of us to have one of our increasingly frequent conversations. Although we had shared the same body and mind for a lifetime, we had only recently begun to really talk with one another. I have some good news. I could use some good news. Just before coming out here to Montana, I got a $20,000 bonus check. What? <laughs> More money than I've ever had in my life. That's enough to pay for everything, isn't it? Uh, well, n not quite. But combined with my bonus at the end of the year, I think we can pay for everything that's still left. Fantastic. And Bob? Yes. Great prayer. Please, God, let me make love as a woman just once? It was a joke. Oh, I hope not. You liked it? Yeah. Well, hopefully it will be more than once. Thank you, Freya Richmond and Sean Dooley. So, wow, you wrote a play. I did. So, how does that feel? tell your life, to write it down, first to, to write it down, and then to have it be staged in front of audiences, played by other people? Well, sitting behind Bob and Susan, listening to me talk to myself, <laughs> it's going to take some getting used to, I, I think. <laughs> I mean, I'm in theater, and even that kind of blows my mind. No, you're not going to play me on stage, are you? And oh, for you, it'd be me and me. Yeah, all of me's. All, all of you's. <laughs> So, okay, let's kind of start it. Let's, I have a couple of questions about the beginning. About the beginning. The beginning. Okay. We're going to go back to the beginning. When you, uh, you were telling me when you were three years old, you, um, you dressed up in this, in an outfit. 
In my outfit, my in little your, girl's outfit. In your little girl's outfit. And you told your mother that you wanted to be a girl. That's right. Well, tell us the story. I, uh, I, I got into my little girl's outfit, and uh, I went into my mother's bedroom, and she was still in bed, and I told her that I wanted to be a little girl. And she said, well, you mean you want to pretend to be a little girl? And I said, no, I'd like to be a little girl. She said, well, that's a problem sometimes. It, your sister doesn't like it, your father doesn't like it, and uh, it's a problem. Yeah. And then she said, but when they're not here, they'd be okay. She did. She did. And this is 1940s, this is early 40s. 1945. Yeah. Worthington, Minnesota. Yeah. Wow, that's something. So um, at that young age, what were the feelings? What was going through your mind as far as... I was just, that's what was in my mind. Yeah. That was, I was expressing what I felt and thought and was. There was no theory at that time. Yeah. There were no, there was no articles in the paper or anything. Yeah. It was just the way I felt about who I was. And how did that feel to be, ha- be feeling that, but to be anatomically and, uh, uh, and be treated as a boy? When I was able to be a girl, it was great. Was uh, it freeing? It was sublime. Oh, wow. It was just, it was just being. Did it just make it just made sense? It was just this. Just the way it was. Yeah. Your mother had said, do not okay, you can wear the outfit when it's just with me, but not with, with your father, not with your sister. But you were telling me about a time when you kind of got bold and you wore it with some friends. <coughs> excuse me. You're excused. I thank you. God bless you. Yes. <laughs> That's what we call a callback. Good job. She is in theater now. Uh, I, uh, I went out to play with some of my friends in the alley behind our house. We moved from Worthington to St. Paul. We lived on Maywood Street in St. Paul. And how old are you at this point? I'm now six. Okay. And um, somehow we got talking about the differences between boys and girls. And, you know, they didn't know the half of it. And <laughs> I decided that this would be a good time for me to simply declare myself. So I went back in the house, and I got on my little girl's clothes, and I went back out into the alley and started playing as a little girl, and I caused quite a commotion in the neighborhood. And my mother came out and dragged me into uh, into the house, and all my friends followed me in, and everybody was staring at me, and she said, you can never do this again, never again, ever. Wow. And I went down to the bottom of the basement steps by myself, and I just let the darkness close in on me. Mm. And Susan and I agreed that we would never do that again. Wow. And how did that feel? Pretty much like the end of the world. Yeah. Then, December 1st, 1952, there's an article in the New York Daily News, and the headline is, XGI Becomes Blonde Beauty, and it's about Christine Jorgensen. You told me about that. Tell, tell us about that. Well, I didn't see it in the New York Post. I got oh. it in the St. Paul Dispatch on December 1st, 1952. Yeah. Down in the lower right-hand corner was the headline, a man has become a woman, 
and in those very explicit, very feminist terms that you just read, yeah. they told of Christine Jorgensen's transition from being, being a man and becoming a woman. And I couldn't talk to anybody about it, but I suddenly realized I'm no longer alone in this world. Wow. And somebody has done something about it. Wow. That must have been incredibly freeing. So 10 years old, you're thinking, okay, that, that's it, that's it, that's, that's me, right? And now Christine, she, uh, uh, she was a, a GI. She'd been drafted in World War II. And uh, she was on her way to Sweden. To, it, was, it was legal in Sweden. And, and she went uh, through Denmark to visit some friends. And there, and there was a doctor in Denmark that was also doing the full reassignment surgery. And so she had it done there. So after that, did your dreams change? Did your expectations for yourself change? The difference was that I now knew there were other people in the world like me. Okay. But I was in no position to do anything about it. Yeah. This was, after all, 1952. Yeah. Um, we still had a Cold War going on. And, yeah. and uh, that was even before we had uh, fallout shelters. And, and um, so there wasn't anything to do about it. And besides, I had, I had said I would never do it again. Oh. And so I sort of followed Christine's career very closely. I knew everything about Christine. And um, I, I didn't really do anything about it at all. It was forbidden, and it was, uh, I was to be a man and grow up and get married and have children and do all of those things. And uh, it turns out that didn't quite work out that way. Yeah, right. So you, were you just, so you were 10 when, that, when, that, uh, when you learned about Christine. So you just kind of moved forward, and, and you, as you said to me on the phone, you just decided to kind of tough it out. Yep. And you're going through high school and college, and you're dating, right? You're, sort of. <laughs> you're making the attempt to date, and um, so then, oh, let's let's jump to you're a journalist, and you're um, interviewing the lead in Showboat at a community theater in Owatonna, right? Yes. Her name at that time was May Seeley. Okay. And. Um, we, uh, I, I interviewed her. We talked about her growing up on a farm in Wisconsin. Okay. And uh, we talked a little bit about what it was like to live without electricity and water because I had been in the Peace Corps recently, and I had done that. We shared that experience. And um, we uh, started spending as much time together as we could. And after, um, after the, the showboat was over, we, uh, we began to date. And shortly thereafter, I told someone else in my life that I thought I was probably a transvestite. And I hadn't told anybody that in 20 years. So you're telling, so the first time you're saying this is to May. Yes. And transvestite was the term at the time. I thought it was safer than saying I was transsexual. Yeah. And, and were I, there other terms at that time? I mean, were there... Um... There was beginning to be a, a literature. Okay. There was a book called The Transsexual Phenomenon that had been published. Oh, okay. And uh, um, by a lot of the people who worked with Christine in the early days. Yeah, okay. Um, but it was, there was, um, I was in, when I was in the Peace Corps, I was in New Delhi 
and uh, I hesitate to say this because somebody might say I should put it in the play. And that somebody might be in the back of the room, actually. Uh, I, uh, I was at a newsstand in New Delhi, and there's this little sex book. You remember those little... Well, no, you, of course you none, do. None of, we all, of course we do. No, we all remember, remember the sex those. books in New Delhi. Of course. I got a and, whole rack of them. And, I mean, uh, shelf. Well, I, Sorry. I used to have a full rack. <laughs> and, but go on. And it said, the University of Minnesota is going to do 20 sex change operations for free. <gasps> I said, what the hell am I doing in New Delhi? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he says, put that in the play. I think you got to put that in the play. Um, so... But, but so what you were thinking, rush back to Minnesota and apply for one of those 20 no, free spots? Because really, I promised I wouldn't do that. Yeah. So I continued to soldier on. Yeah, you soldiered on. And, uh, and uh, May and I eventually got married. Yeah. And um, we, we tried to have a marriage, but this is not the firmest foundation for a traditional heterosexual relationship. Especially in 19, well, it's been in the late 60s, early 70s in the United States. Yeah. So we struggled, and we uh, we had some good times. We had some really bad times. Um, as a result of all this, I have this most extraordinary friendship with May Sylvester, who um, it, there's no word in the English language that describes our relationship. Mm. Uh, it was not a marriage then, it's not a marriage now, but it's, but friendship hardly does it justice. You're still very, very, very close. Very, very close, yeah. and she's, she's with us tonight, and... Yeah, she and, is, actually, uh, she's actually right over here. May, yes, yeah, there she is. a very special yep. person. And our friendship has endured. Yes. And eventually, eventually, um, I found myself falling asleep and driving over a cliff in Montana and right. so, picked it up from there. Yeah, so the scene that we saw earlier, uh, there, even in the scene you've written that, oh, I fell asleep. No, I think you were trying to kill yourself. And, and what is the true answer? Are you still not sure? I believe I fell asleep. Um, and I, I, I believe that I had no intention of doing what I did at, at that time. I yeah. had thought about it, and I had planned something very, very close to this. You had thought about suicide. Yes. Yeah. Bob and Susan had become in communication, which was quite a breakthrough. And, and they had begun to speak with one another. They weren't too fond of one another, um, but they had begun to talk with one another. And um, I, I began to realize as we went through this experience of driving over this cliff and into the river, that indeed I, I should have died. Mm. There, there, that the life, that my life was spared, and I assumed it was spared for a reason. Yeah. I stood at the bottom of the cliff and I looked up at the cliff and I said, everything from here on out is a bonus. Wow. And that's when I decided it's time to live the life I have always imagined. Yes. So that's, 
that's when you decided to uh, go forward with the to plan for the surgery. That's when I. And you're in your forties at this point. I'm forty-one. About. Forty-one. Okay. I decided at that point it's time to really get serious about okay. this. Start start to go to work and do this. And that going to work and doing this, you were telling me at that one point, Bob had a therapist, Susan had a separate therapist, yeah. May had a therapist, yeah. everybody had their own therapist, different yeah. therapist. We had a couple that floated in amongst and all of us. Right. At one time, I, I counted up 12 counselors. Wow. But some of that was required. Wasn't there certain requirements before you could have the surgery? You had to go through all certain psychological testing and all that kind of thing, well, right? There, turns out there was a protocol for it. Yeah. What I was engaged in, I didn't know it at the time, and I don't think we had the term yet. I was in conversion therapy. Oh. I was convinced that I was a problem and that I could be solved. Oh. If I just applied to it, I applied myself, I could work this out. Wow. There was a theory at that time that we were all born as, in terms of our gender, we were all born as a blank slate. And that society taught girls, taught, treated girls in one way and boys in another way. And so some people became boys and some people became girls. Seems absolutely asinine. Yeah, right. <laughs> But that's yeah. what was believed in. And so when I heard about that, that possibility, I said, well, let's just work this through and fix it. Oh. Um, that, caused, that caused a great deal of anger. And I did a lot of harm to myself and to May in the process of trying to fix myself as a problem. Wow. I mean, well, just, or just that label that you're, I mean, at this point, that someone's saying, this is a problem that has to be fixed. You're saying, no, I, no, this is I, just who I am. I need to own it. I decided that. Oh, you decided. Okay. Uh, and okay. I decided, well, hell, if, if, that's, if you, you learn it at a young age, you can learn to unlearn it at an older age. So when you figured out that that didn't work. I yeah. had to come to terms with the fact that I was indeed transgender. Yeah. And that I needed to become true to myself. Yeah. And that meant becoming Susan Kimberly. Yeah. Susan Kimberly. You were telling me where both Susan and Kimberly came from. Share that with us. Uh, one of my, one, my personal therapy in the group of... Susan's therapists. My therapist. Yeah, We were having a session, and I said, you know, it's time for me to have my own name. And I said, what I realize is nobody names themselves. Yeah. Somebody else names you. So I asked her if she would be willing to name me. And she said no. She, wasn't, she wouldn't do that. But she said she'd think about it and make some suggestions. And so a week later, we had another session, and she suggested that I should either be a Susan, a Barbara, or a Nancy. I should have a traditional name. Yeah. I'd had an affair with Barbara, and I'd had an affair with Nancy, and I didn't want to think about that every time I wrote a check. <laughs> So I decided Susan would be a good name. Susan's a very good name. Susan's a very good name. And, and Nancy's it is. a good name, too. <laughs> uh, okay, so now tell us where Kimberly came from. One day after I had started going out into the world as Susan, I was in Target. And uh, I came into an aisle, and there was this huge cardboard box. It was, it was, it was bigger than the Ritz. And on the side of the box, it said, Kotex. 
And down on the corner of the box, it said, Kimberly Clark. <laughs> and I said, you know, Kimberly has to be the most feminine name you could possibly have. I think you got that. I think you got that. I think you got that. So, um, in 1983, you, you officially became Susan Kimberly. Is that right? March, March 28th, 1983. March 20th, now, you and May divorced. In those days, you had to be divorced according to the protocol. Okay. Doctors could, couldn't perform surgery if you hadn't been divorced. Oh, okay. And so we were divorced in, uh, very late in 1983. Okay. So now I want to fast forward. So you are, um, it's in the later 80s, and you've transitioned, and now, uh, and you had been a force, as I said earlier, in St. Paul politics, in St. Paul business. Um, and so you're sort of ready to get back into the workforce. And you go to, uh, to interview for the deputy mayor position uh, for, uh, in St. Paul. And you're turned down. Today I can say that Bob and I are, are the former practically everything in St. Paul, Minnesota. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, but at that time, I was working for the, the mayor at that time. Yeah. And the top job in the mayor's office came open. Now, I had been living that time as, uh, as the former Bob Sylvester. Right. And whenever that job opened up, Bob got it. Yeah. So this job opened up. And Bob would have gotten it. And Bob would have gotten it. Yeah. But I didn't get it. No. And I went into the mayor, and uh, we had a long conversation. And he explained why I couldn't have the job. And none of his explanations made any sense. And... I realized I live under two glass ceilings. Yeah. I'm a woman, yeah. and I'm a transgender woman. Right. And life was going to be different from now on. Yeah. And I decided as a result of that that I would take a year off, and I did that. And um, I then went into a period of time where I not only couldn't find a job, I couldn't get an interview for a job. Now, I take a lot of responsibility for some of the things that I did that created that possibility, but a lot of it was simply that I had had a sex change operation and everybody knew it. And yet, there is that other glass ceiling, as you mentioned, that it could just be, Bob would have gotten the job, a woman wouldn't get the job. So there's another job that you apply for that you don't even get an uh, interview for. And you were telling me about this story. It's, a, it's, it's in your play as well. Um, and you asked some of your coworkers or friends to keep their eyes and ears open to see whether this was a situation of discrimination. And you find out about this joke. Yeah, the, the, chairman of, uh, of the, uh, the chairman of the board of the organization I was trying to get this job from was in uh, the Minnesota Club, in the dining, main dining room of the Minnesota Club he started to tell this joke about a transsexual who has an interview with her physician. Yeah. It's a terrible joke. It's a terrible joke. And it's not just a transgender joke, it's a joke on all women. Right. And it's a horrible joke. Right. And if you come to the play, you can hear the joke. Tell, tell me about, you, you told me earlier about your reaction to that. So what I realized was I had gone, I'd had a very affirming experience in my coming out. I'd had a very supportive welcome to the community. 
Um, I think I was hearing half of it. Um, and when I heard the joke, I knew that something profound had changed in my life, and I had gone from being somebody who was not only well thought of but was important and was now a dirty joke. And How'd that I, feel? You know, I knew it was more complicated than that, yeah. but it was devastating. Yeah. Um, in, uh, when you were a little kid, you had dreams of becoming a mayor. Yeah. Yeah. So after all of that, there's the there's being turned down, there's the not getting jobs, there's the joke. And then, and yet, in 1998, you are sworn in as Norm Coleman's deputy mayor. That's right. Becoming the first transgender woman to become a deputy mayor in the United States. That's right. Bravo. And... And a deputy mayor means, go ahead. Whenever the mayor is, as the charter says, out of the city or otherwise disabled, the deputy mayor serves as the mayor. So I was the mayor of St. Paul dozens and dozens of times. (laughs) Now, I want to close with, um, there's there's a very powerful monologue in the end of the play, and it's May uh, uh, speaking. Most people assume that Bob created Susan. I think it was the other way around. Bob was Susan's creation. Susan was at the core of Bob's being from the very beginning. She created Bob to provide protection for her journey from childhood to adulthood. When she put on her little girl's outfit and told her mother that she was a little girl, she wasn't asking for permission. She was declaring an existential certainty. And I can tell you from firsthand experience, seeing your husband dressed as a woman can be devastating until you realize that his manliness is the pretension. The little girl in the gingham dress is for real. Becoming real is never a tragedy. Susan Kimberly. Thank you so much, Susan. And May Sylvester. Stand up, May. And thanks again to Freya Richmond and Sean Dooley, who brought that scene to life. February 8th at the History Theater, Superman Becomes Lois Lane. Well, that's our show. Thank you so much again to Susan Kimberly and to our cast, Day Yang and Nancy Backshaw-Riesner, Sylvia Pontaza, our singer-songwriter, Zippy Lasky. Tonight's episode was written by all of us. And thanks to our lovely engineer, Barry Medore, over here and Tony Axtell, and our volunteers, Suzanne Egley and Carolyn Ward-Denton out there. And a big thank you to Lynn Gordon and the staff here at the North Social Hall. And we will be back for another live island of discarded women. Thank you, everybody. I'm Sue Scott. I used to think-